So when we um, meditate or go more into our whole mind consciousness operates, we get a chance to uh, really see how it uh, is hooked up to to events in the world around us, sights, sounds, touches, tastes, things happening, things that stir us, shock us, disappoint us, excite us. Mm-hmm. You actually kind of just experiencing that as a what what actually happens, you know. What does it feel like? Mm-hmm. So when the Buddha himself was contemplating this. You know, this is how this teaching on dependent origination arose, just contemplating, you know, when there's a contact, some kind of impression arises, there's a particular feeling, and then there's a certain sense of thirst or hunger around that feeling. You want to, you know, feeling gives us the push, the push of pleasure or the push of pain, pushes, and then it's, you know, Dependent on that push, arises the kind of craving, or like to scratch the itch, to put out, you know, to to follow that push. So we'll feel we've got, you know, we've arrived at the place where that push is directing us. We'll have got the pleasant thing. We'll have got away from the unpleasant thing. So, so dependent on feeling is this sense of craving. The dependent on craving, thirst. Or what comes out of that rises dependent on that is clinging. That is a sense of holding on, or trying to hold on to, or feeding upon, you know, something that we feel will satisfy or give a fortunate result to the to the thirst of the mind. You know, something we can get our teeth into, something we can hold on to to defend ourselves, to push away the unpleasant, something we can store up to make sure the pleasant, the agreeable, the okay stays longer. You know, there's upadana, clinging, feeding upon. This is kind of the way it operates. And it's just the idea to contemplate this. It's not a personal thing, you know, it's what, how it operates. We can see this. So we take these things very personally. It's a big, big personal issue. They're not personal issues, it's just... That's how it's supposed to operate. <laughs> you know, it's a kind of, that's how it works. And, uh, you know, we, and obviously that system works to some degree, but it, it, uh, it, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not satisfactory in that we never really manage to hold on to things for as long as we want to. Things are pleasant things. Either they become tedious or boring, they lose their pleasantness, or they fall away, they depart, or they leave, or they fall apart. Uh, and the unpleasant sort of has a way of getting in past our defences, the cold, or the irritating, or the frustrating 
things or you know, happen in our lives kind of get in there no matter how much we try to get things sorted out established calmed down tidied up figured you know properly taught educated you know trained everything <laughs> still something goes click goes out somewhere along the line you know so you know you can see how this though you know it doesn't really quite work, does it? Well, what else do we have? <laughs> you know, what else do we have? Mm. So the, the aim of Buddha's teaching is just to um, provide us with something better than that. <laughs> you know, it's not. It's not a. Uh, you know, could we call it a religion or a philosophy or just a way of life? The Buddha's aim is just to, st- to help us stop suffering. <laughs> it's a very generous thing to do. You know, not asking to believe in anything or to sign up for something. You know, but just to give us all a hand with this uh, feeling of dissatisfaction. This is incredibly uh, generous offer. The Buddha, he felt he had something he could present, offer to people, and just roll it out, you know, see what happens. So I think this is a very lovely feature of the Buddha's teaching. Mm. So you can, you know, with whatever your stance is, you can see the, these simple structures of feeling, the kind of interest in that, or or pushing it away and then they're trying to bolster up the the access to pleasant feeling or comfortable or agreeable or peaceful or calm or tidy or whatever it is. <coughs> agreeable is a very broad term. It doesn't mean it's kind of sensory delight. It could be just a feeling of uh, oh, everything's nice and tidy and quiet and I feel happy. You know? I want more of that. I want it to be like that all the time, actually. You know? Well ordered, it's not a kind of gross desire. Yeah. So you get these kind of mental feelings, emotional balance. You know, when your mind is is happy and bright, want it to be like that. You know, and then it, uh, it but the you know, and what is if you can make it like that, then then by all means do, if that you can do that. But his experience was that it doesn't. That doesn't happen, you know. Sooner or later, it changes again. But he said there is a more another way in which you can find that better way, and it actually goes. It's by working on that very system, that feeling, impressions. You know, the particular way something strikes you, the feeling that arised, and then the thirst for that, the interest in that, and then the holding on that particular system. There's another way you can. You can look at that, you can operate it. Just look at impressions for a start. You know, how the mind, you, know, you begin to see that there's a difference between the, the mental impression and the tactile impression. You know, as you touch something, and you know, so that could just, you know, that's one thing, but actually what your mind makes of it is rather different. You know? So if somebody you like holds your hand, it's rather pleasant. Somebody you don't like holds your hand, it's rather unpleasant. 
it's like that. Is it the same kind of basic tactile sensations? Yeah. You know, when uh, when it's it's hot, very hot, and cool feels pleasant, agreeable. When it's cold, cool feels unpleasant. So we have all kinds of you know mental takes on things. Sounds, when does sound be pleasant or unpleasant? When is music pleasant? When is it horrible? When there's this, you know, somebody playing rock music at uh, five o'clock in the evening when you're in a good mood, very nice, two o'clock in the morning when you get some sleep, horrible row, horrible noise. Yeah. So it's very obvious, you can see that there's the order, there's the external senses, there's the mental sense. And the mental sense is the dominant one. Because you can actually with your mental, with your mind, will tend to select and even override the other impressions. So you're sitting there watching your television and you don't notice the draft. You don't notice the the strange smell coming in through the window or whatever it is because you're absorbed in the television. It's not that you don't have a nose or you don't have skin anymore, but just your mind is absorbed in a particular, um, another sense base. So that other senses don't count. Your mind can override them. So the really important one is the mind, isn't it? The mental impression, and that's different. And it's based upon what we attend to, what we choose, where our values and meanings are, where our preferences are. So it's got that to it. So once you begin to understand that, then you can see that, uh, you know, what what if the mind was really interested in itself? (laughs) You know, what if that was valuable? What if instead of, uh, you know, the uh, sights and sounds and touches and tastes and this and that, the mind kind of turned upon itself, you know, and looked into that, and this is, of course, what we try to do in meditation. And then we think, well, you know, it's, it's pretty difficult out there. It's even worse in here. <laughs> because when the mind turns upon itself, there's uh, various thoughts. And, and un, you know, first of all, it feels kind of unhooked, you know, because it's not, so it gets restless. And then we come into things like energies that you hardly noticed before. Suddenly you feel really dull, sleepy or you feel really tight and restless, or your mind is jumping and jittering around. Or a particular train of thought starts to obsess you, occupy your mind. Or you have a particular bias or an attitude about what you should be or could be or are or aren't. This becomes obsessive. I am this, I'm not this, I should be this, I'm never that. You adopts these views. And these are... Views and ways of seeing things have a tremendous power. What we what we tend to uh, regard or give attention to, and even the way in which we do that. So we can regard, look at our thoughts, mental impressions, things like that, trying to find the good one. 
you know, and then it's quite, uh, and then so mind we get, you know, or or, or uh, you know, thinking about them more, or disliking them. Wish these thoughts would go away. This is rather like listening to music. You know, you can go like it or you can dislike it. Yeah, but that really, you know, both of those are getting, taking you into that craving and clinging. What if it would like if you just notice them as thoughts? You know, so you just leave them alone. Mm-hmm. So you start to, and you realize that, you know, with this you begin to relax a lot of the, the views we have about how our mind should or shouldn't be. Yeah. we start to realize that these thoughts are actually not the mind they're things that flitter through the mind that can be generated and created but there's also a kind of an, uh, a, a mind that's a little bit further back from that a little bit you know, deeper than that which can, which can actually relate to thoughts which can cling to them or let go of them we can cling to our moods and feelings, we can take issue with them, we can wrestle with them, or we can step back and say, oh, it's just the feelings like this, thoughts like this, comes and it goes like this. So we, this is something, so, ah. So those thoughts and those impressions, those feelings, those memories, those emotions, you know, they're not some kind of continual steady essence. You know, they are fabrications, or they are wrappings, they are ornaments, they are the things that kind of wrapped around the mind. And you come back, oh, that's interesting, isn't it? So when we really attend to the mind, you start to see there's a difference between the mental fabrications, the mental concoctions, the mental programs, the mental attitudes, the mental obsessions, the mental biases, the mental movements and something else, you know, witnessing, awareness. And you can sense, because you also begin to sense a particular energy there. There's an energy which is very much moving and moving out, and moving down and moving up, you know. So we say, what do we mean by mental energy? You might say, well, you know what it means when we say, oh, my heart's really heavy, you know. How can a heart be heavy, you know? No heavier than it was this morning, is it? You're put on weight. Well, you, you feel something that you call feeling heavy, or you feel light, or you feel a bit light-headed. So, l- feeling light is good. Feeling light-headed is not good. So, what does that mean? What's happening? Does your head weigh less, uh, or you feel spinning, and you're standing still, and you're not spinning. Or you feel uh, um, stale and stagnant. What are you referring to? You know, you're referring to particular energies. You know? So when the mental energy is is tight, or, or we feel we feel ourselves feels to be defensive or bristling or <coughs> nervous or tense, you can feel that. There's a particular energy when we feel uh, excited. You know, it feels different. We feel fearful, vacillating, it feels different. We feel warm and loving, it feels different. 
you know, feel serene, feel different, you know, different, different feelings. You start to sense these and how these, in a way, are, are the basic movements of the mind, the basic, you know, the, almost the vibrations or the different kind of uh, dimensions, the different um, phases the mind goes through. And dependent upon that, these particular thoughts and, and start getting concocted dependent upon the energy. So when you're in a kind of flat mood, you don't start thinking bright, sunny thoughts. <laughs> when your mind feels tight and contracted, you don't start thinking, you know, generous, loving thoughts. You generally feel paranoid or, you know, fault-finding or something like that. So, you know, you can try and just slap some happy thoughts on top of it, which is a pretty, you know, rotten thing to do, really. Because this is a way as a kind of almost like um, covering it up. You know, slap some happy thoughts on top of a difficult state. And, you know, sometimes it can kind of just almost like kick-start it because you can introduce a a generous recollection that does change the energy of your mind. But it's to be done with a very sense of, of really reflecting and something that's genuinely felt. It's not like, be happy, but, you know, as an order, you should be this, you should be that, but really bringing something to mind that does change your energy. You start to feel, oh, you know, the other people go through this particular experience just as I do. Yeah. Oh, that's not really... You know, it's not a, it's not a kind of telling you to be one way or another. But when you start to consider when other people get sad, other people get angry, other people get depressed, they go through this too. Oh, suddenly the view changes, the self view, the sense of this is mine changes, and your energy starts to just relax a little bit. You know, you get a, don't feel so so bottled up. You don't feel so identified with that particular mindset. So you see how a view can change your energy and your energy can support a particular view and attitude. So when you get very defensive and tight, that energy, then you see things as fearful, mistrustful, perilous, subject to, you know, something you've got to be alarmed about. So energy and view these two kind of fundamental conditions or conditioners that the mind uh, experiences, it operates through. And as we start to see these, you can work with these, you begin to become uh, more independent from them because you see them for what they are. You can work with them. They don't convince you. Of course, a lot of the time they do convince you. They convince me anyway. <laughs> but that's that's the learning, isn't it? You kind of go along in your little world, your little bubble, believing this, believing that, and everything's this, and it's totally true and real. And then something suddenly, bang, happens. You think, my God, I've just been creating a whole, you know, issue about something that isn't even there. <laughs> you know, a world 
worldview about what I should be and the way it is and all that. You know, gracious me, a dream, you know. You know, you wake up one morning, you think, I had a strange dream, I was a Buddhist monk. And, you know, <laughs> and I was in this monastery and I was trying to make it work and things like that. You think, what a strange dream that was, you know. So even this is not a bad view, it's not like, uh, you know, fascism or anything like that, it's just kind of, but you can see how you get attached to that and you start to see things in that way and you believe, and from that you become something. So when you cling, the clinging occurs, then this process of becoming something occurs after it. You become something dependent upon that. The view, the view gets backed up by a particular energy, and the energy really is, is the kind of the thing that feels very solid. So it's not just an idea. It really feels... Because there's a particular substance behind it. You know, just like feeling heavy or feeling groundless or feeling, you know, defensive. These are not... These set up particular nervous reactions in us. So it becomes really lived in. It's not just a thought. Mm. Why, in a way, we when we live in a, a community and try to live in this way, it's just to help to stop getting stuck in our worlds. <laughs> you know, and it's one of the things of retreats. Of course, is when it's silent and you can be on your own. It's easy to get, you know, believe in in your mind believe in your world, believe in your views, believe in your energies. Yeah. So, you know, because my energy feels like this, I should follow it. Not necessarily. It means you should work with it. And you can get kind of views. You get views about Dhamma, you get views about Sangha, you get views about Buddha, you get views about yourself. Yeah. And what you need and what you don't need, you know. These kind of things. So living in a community is a good occasion to actually just kind of recognise, well, you know, um, you're part of something, you know, part of something bigger. And uh, training the mind to pick up, if you like, the energy that is harmonious, the view that's harmonious. So... It's condition, it's not some kind of ultimate truth, but it's it's something we can start to see. Am I, for example, kind of, um, you know, harmonizing with the the whole thing? Is my are my manners, you know, my behaviour kind of loud or crashing around, or in fact not strong enough? You know, you're not putting yourself in enough. So you can find often in the community. Sometimes people are kind of just almost disappearing into the wall. <laughs> you get, you know, twenty people in a room, and there's five people who are actually just obviously going out of the window. <laughs> you know, sort of dis- evaporating. Just going so much, don't want to be there. This energy is just disappearing, and some people are actually so strongly there, they're kind of pushing, pushing it around. Other people are contracted. It's like that. You're just trying to find out. What is it that helps us all just, you know, harmonize?
you know, is it harmless? So you get a sense of actually using, you know, adapting what sangha is about. Really, it's not even agreeing on an on an idea level, but an agreeing or feeling harmonious in terms of our energies. So a sense in which you you can sense other people. You're attent- You're sensitive to other people's presence. You're aware of what's going on. You f- flow along with the general routine or the procedure or what's going on. You're just going to flow along with it. Pick it up. Yeah? So that it becomes something that isn't just the external thing that's going on and so what, you know? So I've got my practice. But actually, <laughs> you know, there's a particular energy that you just adapt to. So... And sometimes in in a, in a monastery, it's, it's very very. The changes are quite sudden. We come from sitting here this morning, you know, very very quiet, sitting there for about an hour or a half or so, meditation, and then there's this kind of chick 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 chick. Ah, okay, people have arrived for the meal, you know. So suddenly, it just there's like thirty five people or so came in, you know, uh, and the Thai people, so they're not, you know, they're not meditating, they're not, they're actually just made a big effort, rushed up from Bournemouth, you know, so they all, big, two minibuses full of people come up to offer food for uh, for somebody who's passed away, so they're, they're very much interested in, you know, in, in connecting, in, in, uh, Supporting the person who's who's passed, whose whose wife passed away, so it's a very chatty scene. You know, not not unpleasant. You know, people aren't being a, a nasty, but it's definitely a change of energy. You know, shift of energy from being very quiet and spacious to suddenly being more activated. So okay, you know, here we go. So you know, you could actually make that really unpleasant. You know, you can make that really unpleasant. You can feel that sense of energy changing, and then. I want my energy to be in this kind of spacious, very sensitive, open, quiet place. I don't want it to be in this kind of activated. And that's really all. You know? But then you can form a view. This is a meditation retreat. This is a monastery. You should be quiet. Don't come disturb me. You think, ah, they don't disturb me. They won't bring me any food. Ah, wait a minute. <laughs> um, Bring the food over to the kitchen quietly. <laughs> so, you know, you think, well, that sounds a bit cheap, doesn't it? <laughs> you can come here, give me the food, and go away, leave me alone. You know, wow, well, great. <laughs> doesn't sound it's rather kind of selfish, isn't it? You know? Think, oh, well, have people, how inconvenient that somebody went and died. You know, couldn't you die at another time? <laughs> Disturb my meditation. Always like this dying all over the place. <laughs> or babies being born, and you know, this stuff, all this silly stuff. <laughs> why? You know, why does it get like that? Just because we've, we feel that particular energy of really spacious, and bright, and open, and suddenly it's activated. Nobody's being unpleasant, nobody's threatening, actually there's generosity happening. And it's a change of energy, you feel this kind of sense of... And then the view comes up. And then you go, oh, I'll never get a moment's peace and quiet, so I'm trying to meditate. 
look, it's only for half an hour <laughs> out of 24. <laughs> and you can pick that up and make a problem out of it and keep it going for the rest of the day. You know? yeah. Or you can just see energy changes and, okay, let's go with this. Because that's what's happening you know, right now. So then, you know, you do recognize how the mind operates in terms of views and energies, and it, it does that. But the sense of just, you know, not hanging on to it, because it must change. You know, it must change, and not, not, atta- not attaching to it. Which means we can be with it, and it's, when it changes, it's just another form of energy. It's, you can make it pleasant or unpleasant if you wanted to, but really it's just another form of energy. It's got no... It's not trying to do anything to you. It's not actually deciding it's going to give you a hard time. It has no motivation. It's just a change. <clears throat> and yet we can feel you know, shut down or spun out by that. Because the ability just to really meet these changes... Yeah. I think it's very quiet. Oh, I'm bored. Something nice if something could happen. Have a chat with somebody. Something interesting happen. I'm bored with all this sort of serene stuff. God, drives me nuts. You know, this doing nothing is seriously overrated. A bit of something to get interested in. <coughs> something happens, you want it to calm down. Something doesn't happen, you want it to pick up. <laughs> or, you know, we have the, these um, vigils. We sit up for hours at a time. Right now we're just sitting these, this on the moons until midnight. You know, still it's quite a long sitting. And, you know, you can start off full of ideas and inspiration and suddenly, you know, 11 o'clock, you think, who's that snoring? And you realize it's you. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. You know, you think you're starting to have an opinion about people falling asleep and you realize, oh, it's uh, me. (laughs) Because, you know, the energy shifts, doesn't it? get very optimistic about how it's going to be but it changes it's this sense of just understanding noticing energy and not clinging to it and kind of you know by, by really sensing how it hooks up to links up to particular mind states that cause us to attach for good or for bad, to what's happening around us. And what's happening around us is always going to be happening around us. It's going to be warm, it's going to be cold, it's going to be busy, it's going to be quiet. And you can make those pleasant or unpleasant. But it's the hooking up to it. Letting it, you know, shift your mind around. Some of it affects us on an energetic level. Still, we can sense this is just, you know, energy changing. And in meditation, you certainly make those practices that tend to stabilize your energy. 
you know, one of the practices of samadhi is really about destabilizing, filling out the body, stabilizing it, softening it, quietening it, massaging it, gladdening it. So that particular, you know, becomes much more like a like a for almost a ballast, like a certain gravity, like a force field, whereby you don't just by that alone you've got something to rest in. You don't get pulled out so much because you've got this inner inner gravity. But still, that changes. You know, you can't have it all the time. Sometimes you want to have it all the time because it makes you know when you get good samadhi, you start to get a view. I am this. I've got this. I can do this. Here I am. I'm okay, and uh, don't bother me. You know. That's of course the problem with it is that it is it is very useful, but still we can attach to the energy and form views out of that. Really what, you know, simple practices that help are things like harmony, you know, the sense of harmonizing with a situation, you know, just feeling it out, harmonizing how you can merge, how you can blend, how you can, you know, find a place within it, how you can adapt, how you can support, how you can flow along with things. It's just pleasant, comfortable, you know. Easy, yeah. and it helps you to one helps to let go of the of the views, you know, people and things, situations. You know, we can think there's too much talking or too much meditation or too much teaching or not enough teaching or this that and the other. But really, the main thing is it's going to change, and how do, how do we just adapt, flow along with that because that's the main point that's the main point, the rest of it must change must come and go and what a, what uh, possibility for learning is, is how to uh, to move with change so that instead of that sorrow, resistance, craving there's just a sense of oh it's like this now it's like this now and you don't find, you don't form views about it should be like this, it was better, it could be better, wish it was another way, just, no, you know. Then you check it out, you know. Really what uh, uh, helps in, uh, is one simple word, patience, is, a, is one of these transcendent virtues, or parami, Enormously helpful uh, practice. You know, it gives you something to, to to tag, something to name. Oh, patience, because of course it's uh, it's not not really encouraged. It's a kind of punishment being patient. <laughs> Generally, you know, when you airplanes three hours late, then you've got to be patient. And it's a kind of torment, and they thank you for it. Thank you for being patient. You haven't been very patient. You've been snarling and upset and nasty to the ticket people. They say thank you for your patience. You know, and it's considered a kind of tremendous burden to have to to uh, to um, impose upon a person to make them be patient. Whereas really, they should say, you know, your airplane's three hours late. How wonderful! You've got a chance to be patient. You should thank us. 
<laughs> because this is such a wonderful opportunity to develop your mind, you know. But not everybody's into mental development. Because uh, patience is actually it is something that uh, has all kinds of um, benefits, you know, both because airlines do, you know, traffic jams do occur, planes do get delayed and so on. So, so if you're going to be like that, what are you going to do? Go nuts, get angry, get depressed, or just, hmm, you know, find a way out of that, out of that lock. And there are different ways of looking at it, you know, that, uh, you know, because it's not tremendously encouraged the ideas to be as impatient as possible. So don't wait any longer, you know, than you really have to. I don't like, you know, and that, that, that time span gets shorter and shorter. I remember when I first uh, saw, uh, you know, a computer, somebody switched this thing on, and, like, it started to power up. And I was looking at these little beeps and lights going, this was a few years ago. It took a few minutes to get going, and then you had to push some buttons, and it started up a kind of initial program. And eventually, after a few minutes, you know, you could get something going. But now, you know, you switch it on, you've got to wait 25 seconds. Can we stop bashing the keyboard, you know? <laughs> You know, let alone something takes five minutes to power up is just absolutely intolerable. You're going crazy over it. Five minutes is not very long. Well, you know, how long is five minutes? How long is your patience, isn't it? So, but when you actually see what patience is, it's not, you know, First of all, it's just actually restraining the impulse, the agitation, the anger, the, the, the drive, the thrust, the, that kind of urgency, just restraining it is the first step. But really it's much more than that. You, know, you think, well, you know, just wait for five minutes, then it'll happen. That's a little bit of patience. Hmm. But then really, for a cultivator, the, the sense is you start to tune into, you know, what if it, it's like big patience, is patience with, uh, with your mind, which doesn't, you know, it doesn't suddenly, after five minutes, start producing wonderful, clear programs. It, you know, it goes on and on and on and on and on, and it's just one kind of dysfunction after another. <laughs> so it's not like wait till the end, because there isn't one. So it's not, you know, wait and then you'll get the payoff. It's just experience the quality of patience as an energy. How that energy works upon the the energies of the mind that view and energy you start to introduce that view and energy to the mind not you should be patient what is it like you know and to me it's a very wide spacious quality it's actually kind of sweet as well because it's 
It knows the, the, the you know, that it can feel the prickling the, of agitation. It can feel, it can understand those views of how it should be and the, I want it to be like this and when is it ever going to change? And it just accepts that. And it gets bigger and wider and more embracing of all that churning stuff. This to me, then, then it doesn't matter whether it ends or not. Because just the quality of this kind of very sweet, wide, steady state itself is, is just um, a place to be, you know. This was the main teaching, Ajahn Chah's main teaching, was just this, this one word. Patience. Mm. Because it's the weather to be patient with. The heat, stifling, humid heat. The tedium to be patient with. Day in, day out, day in, day out. The ants to be patient with. The biting of the ants to be patient with. The waiting, waiting for things to happen to be patient with. Long, long dhamma talks to be patient with. Long, long all-night sittings be patient with things that seem boring and tedious, unimportant, going nowhere, useless. Why do you bother to do this? Be patient with you know. It was like just continually touching that particular, you know, that particular theme, until eventually your patience can get big enough to handle all of it. The Buddha said, "This is the primary practice." This is the primary tapa is a kind of uh, almost an austerity. It means a practice that really pushes, a practice that really cuts in, a practice that really presses the nerves. You know, tapa. It's a real energy practice. And you're thinking, well, what's the really tough ascetic practice? Is it fasting? Is it hanging upside down from one leg? Is it, <laughs> you know... Is it non-stop, 24-hour recitations? Is it, no, it's just being patient with your boring, tedious mind rattling on. <laughs> patient with a life that isn't going anywhere. Patience with, you know, this day-in, day-out thing. You know. Patient with, then just patient. Doesn't matter, you know. Just kind of keep your thumb pressed on that button. <laughs> And then you see that's then you say this is the one that uh, gives you know leads to nibbana because it's not like you can have tapas or ascetic practices that really you know really uh, make you feel high or make you feel powerful or make you feel like you're cutting through something you know I've drunk water for for two days or something and really you know got rid of that one or. I, but the Buddha really felt asceticism was a wrong practice because it, it, it channeled the energy into particular attitudes and gave rise to very strong views. Very strong views. Yeah. Often as views tainted with disgust and aversion to the senses, so strong views. Whereas patient, you say, what's your view? My view is being patient. You know, Wow. 
Does that make you feel better? Well, not really. <laughs> you know, it just... What else? It, it works. It works. It's, it puts the fire out. <laughs> it puts the fire out. It takes the views away. Because then you're, you're patient with something. You're not saying you think things are great. You think they're terrible. You think they should be this way. They could be better. They could be worse. It's a quicker way. There's a more important. Is it? You're no good. It's just no. It's no particular view about any of it, really. No. Is you know, is this the quickest way to enlightenment? The best way to enlightenment? The easiest way to enlightenment? The cheapest way to enlightenment? I don't know. You know. Is, do you think Buddhism is the best thing going in the in the world today? Nope, don't know. <laughs> you think it's not? No, I don't have a view about it really. You know, I don't really. Could be, don't have a view about it. Because the views have a way of just collecting your energy into possessive places or or conflicting places or obstructive places or contentious places or proud places or gloomy places views of power patience is something that just works on that, that that quality of the mind that, that wants to kind of hold something step back from it and judge it and you say no you just go right into it right into it as it is so you're not stepping back from it and judging it feel yourself opening and relaxing into you know the energy that's happening you know without any kind of attitude about it doesn't mean you approve of it but just by removing and by actually getting directly to the energy of uh, you know, frustration or craving or whatever, and just relaxing, relaxing the view. That's what cuts the this cycle, this kind of connection. Mm. And the beauty of it is that the thing that once you, when you start to actually get that place where the the the, the circuitry, this kind of charge this kind of bunching up, this grabbing hold, stops, the rest of it starts to deconstruct itself. You know, it starts to kind of collapse. You know, it's like when you get a, uh, something, some, you get something in your mind you really want to have, like you want to have a hot drink or something. You see like an image of hot drink, cup, steam coming out of it, sweet, black drink, you know. And uh, there it is, you see, in your mind. Then you, but meanwhile, it's only isn't going to happen for four hours. So you know, right? Okay. So you know, you can keep that little image there. It keeps coming up. It just becomes torment, doesn't it? When you've got to wait for four hours for it. But then you're patient. Then you just start to just not you know be patient with that that drive relate directly to that kind of 
you know, movement out, the energy of desire, the energy of craving. There's this patience widens, softens. You start to relax into that and it begins to change. You don't really have to deal so much with the object of the desire, but directly work upon the energy of it or aversion. And this is really helpful because it's uh, all the images in our minds come from the mental energy being gathered up, being driven, being motivated, being these fantasies we have. So it's the view. You work upon the energy and, uh, you know, instead of looking out to the objects of your mind, you go back to the basic temperature. When it's tight, when it's hot, when it's churning, when it's driven, when it's hard, and soften and widen, relax. And the images of the mind, you know, disappear, fade away. The energies of the mind start to harmonize and you you know you find that that by itself it comes out mm. so it's a very direct way of practice mm. and patience bearing with it is a is a very uh fitting way, very appropriate way to get to, to be directly relating to the the movements of the mental energy, whether it becomes stale or, or or aggressive or whatever it is. It's a kind of place where uh, which which is when you bear with it, this is what equanimity is. So when you carry patience through and you it actually takes hold, this is where this almost <laughs> extinct quality of equanimity <laughs> starts to come into play. You know, it's not because you're trying to be indifferent or equanimous. It's not like a, something that's generated by a, a particular sensory input because the mind itself levels, opens, relaxes, steadies. And that's the power of patience is what brings you to equanimity and serenity. And then when you, you can abide in that, this is a place of great rest where the um, you know the mind isn't uh, seized and captured it's not hungry it's it's contented with that so offer this for your reflection tonight.